Hello and welcome to the second of our podcast lectures for conflict and cooperation in international politics. This week, I will be talking to you about humanitarian crises and intervention. Before we dive into the subject, let's do a quick recap of what we've done in the course so far. Up to last week, which was effectively the first half of the course, we looked at a range of theoretical and conceptual approaches to thinking about international politics. We started off by looking at the levels of analysis problem and then went on to talk about approaches such as realism, ethics, liberalism, critical theory and constructivism, and we spoke of empire and globalization. From this week on, we will be looking at a series of major contemporary challenges in international relations and using these concepts and theories to try and understand how states, individuals and decision makers respond to these challenges. Now, the first thing I want to tell you is that you cannot understand these issues simply by applying theories and concepts as if they were some kind of a template or a formula to understand these issues. What we need is a combination of theoretical and conceptual frameworks and a lot of empirical knowledge. So that's what I'm going to try and give you a sense of is how do we think about these things. As always, the lecture is intended to give you an overview of the whole class and then you can go off and read the readings which are prescribed to you, particularly the required readings, before you discuss them in your discussion sections. Okay, so today's topic is humanitarian crises and interventions. Now, we all know what we mean when we talk of humanitarian crises. These are large-scale conflicts or crises arising out of different kinds of situations, such as natural disasters or even man-made disasters of various kinds, which impact the survival and security of a very large number of individuals in various states and societies. Now, why do humanitarian crises call for intervention? Now, the question of intervention has to be understood against the backdrop of the capacity and willingness of every state to do what it takes in order to protect the rights and necessities of its citizens. Now, by intervention, I mean something as simple as involvement, either direct or indirect, in a military or non-military way, in a crisis which is taking place within the boundaries of another state. Now, this crisis, as I said, could be due to natural disasters. It could be due to various kinds of conflicts. Those could be ethnic conflicts. They could be rebellions or insurgencies between a state and a group within that, or different ethnic groups within a state could be fighting one another. All of these constitutes what we think of as conflict within the boundaries of a state. Now, in discussing humanitarian crises and intervention, obviously, there are a number of contingencies to talk about. But in this class, what I want to focus on is one issue which really puts the spotlight on the most salient aspects of any external intervention in an internal crisis to a state, which is armed humanitarian intervention. So that's what I really want to get us to think about is how and under what circumstances do states consider intervening in a humanitarian crisis that is playing out in another state 
particularly by using force. Now, intervention is a difficult question because the system of states in which we live is organized on the principles of sovereignty, which is territorial integrity and political independence. It is a corollary of sovereignty is the idea of non-interference. Other states should not be interfering in the internal affairs of any given state. And the third leg which organizes this system of states, apart from the principles of sovereignty and non-interference, is the non-use of force, except in self-defense. So states are not expected to use force in the pursuit of any objective other than that of defending themselves in the event of being attacked or facing aggression from another state. Now the UN Charter, which in some ways embodies all of these principles which organize our system of states, itself has a tension between what you might think of as the principle of sovereignty and the principles of human rights. Now one way of thinking about this tension is to say that sovereignty effectively pertains to the rights of states, whereas human rights pertains to the rights of individuals. Now we may recall that in the week that we discussed just war theory, particularly the work of the philosopher Michael Walzer, we had asked this question about saying where do states get their political rights from? Yeah. And the answer that we came up with was that it is difficult to say exactly where they come from. In the first place, we can think of it as coming from the rights of the individuals who constitute a certain state. This is the standard way of thinking about the state as the product of a social contract. But another way of thinking about where states get these rights of territorial integrity and political sovereignty is Walzer's argument that communities by virtue of having people living in them for such a long period of time and having built a way of life around that community, in some ways that itself grants a rights of political sovereignty and territorial integrity to all states, right? So you can have a very individualistic reading of where sovereignty comes from, which is that it is basically a transposition of individual human rights, or you could make a case for communities as possessing certain kinds of rights on their own. Whichever way you think about it, there is a tension between sovereignty and human rights, particularly in the UN Charter itself. And I'll come to that when we discuss the legal arguments for and against intervention in the affairs of another state. Now, the whole question of intervention is also fraught because it has these echoes of older forms of imperial relationships. It assumes that some states are in a position to judge whether other states are failing to protect their people and that it requires some kind of external intervention if necessary by using force in order to ensure those kinds of protections. Now, older forms of imperialism were always justified by various kinds of paternalistic ideologies. You know, the burden of the white man, the need to protect Indian women from such barbaric practices like sati. These were the kinds of arguments which were trotted out by empires in their heyday. So, in a sense, the question of intervention brings to the fore earlier forms of justification, which in effect 
operated in an international system which was much more hierarchical. Let's go back to our discussion on empire last week. Empire is effectively a form of hierarchical international relations, whereas we are supposedly living in a system where every state is equal, at least in a juridical sense, if not in formal political power. So, intervention is a tricky and a troublesome question. But still, it remains an important question. How do we deal with states that are turning on their own population rather than protecting them? How do we deal with states that are incapable of ensuring peace and stability within their own borders? Now, one of the readings that we have this week is by the American scholar Hoffman, who talks about tyrannical states as states which are in effect predatory on their Should we treat such tyrannical states as regular members of the international society is a question that Hoffman asks, and I think it's an important one. Now, at one level, this is a legal and a moral question. It's legal because it raises questions about sovereignty, who has the right to do what. It is moral because it calls into question about our moral obligations as members of an international system of states or of an international society, if you will, about what kind of obligations do we have in order to ensure that people are not subjected to such large-scale suffering and that human rights are not violated or abrogated in such massive ways. But beyond being a legal and moral question, it is also a practical one. How do we deal with such states? How does the international system of states deal with such situations? How does the United Nations respond to such situations? All of these has led to a very large literature debating both the arguments for and against humanitarian intervention in the affairs of another state. So what I'm going to do in the rest of the lecture is to take you through the arguments for and against intervention. We will then talk a little bit about practical considerations that states have to face. And finally, I will talk a little bit about how humanitarian intervention and these debates have played out in the context of the recent history of the international system. That will give you a sense of how these issues tend not to be just debated in abstract, conceptual or theoretical terms or even normative terms, but have a real political charge. Okay, so let's start by talking about the arguments that are made for why states can and must intervene in the internal affairs of another state whenever there is a massive violation of human rights. The legal argument effectively starts with the UN Charter. Now, Article 1, Subsection 3 of the UN Charter, 1.3, calls explicitly for promoting and respecting human rights and fundamental freedoms for all. Now, those who make the case for humanitarian intervention really point to this provision of the UN Charter and says that the UN Charter was created with an explicit commitment to protecting and respecting human rights and fundamental freedoms, and that in any context where these are not being respected by individual states, they are automatically in violation of what the UN Charter requires of them, and 
other states have a responsibility for upholding the charter and its uh, the rights that are written down in it. So this is the first leg of the argument which says that the UN Charter itself upholds the principle of human rights and hence there is a legal case to be made to intervene in order to prevent large-scale massive violations of human rights even if it is happening within the borders of one sovereign state. There is a second leg to the legal argument. This invokes the Universal Declaration of Human Rights which was signed in December 1948 by all the member states of the United Nations. The UN Declaration of Human Rights, it's a document which you should read, uh, it's available online, guarantees various human rights to all individuals. It's quite an explicit list of things. Now the preamble to the UDHR explicitly notes that disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind. Let me say that again. It explicitly talks about the disregard and contempt for human rights that have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind. So here are two particular points which are being made. First is that disregard of human rights in a massive way has resulted in acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind. And this is a very important formulation because what we are talking about are violations on a scale that could outrage or rouse the conscience of mankind. Now, the language, of course, is 1948. So when we talk about man, we obviously mean men and women. Now, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was drafted against the backdrop of the Second World War and the Holocaust of the Jews in Europe. Now, both of these led to a much wider consensus around the need to uphold and protect human rights as a new norm. Now, this is an important thing to remember because the idea of human rights, especially when it is positioned in this way, as something that is obligatory for states to respect and that is something whose violation in a massive way can call for various kinds of action is a relatively new thing. People did not think about human rights in quite this way. There has been a lot of talk about rights, about individual rights ever since the American uh, Declaration of Independence and Constitution came in, the French Revolution and much of the political theory in 18th and 19th centuries talks about these kinds of things. But this particular construction of human rights is a very novel post-1945, post-Second World War phenomenon. So that's something we have to understand. Now, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was accompanied, in fact, actually preceded by just a few days, by another important declaration, which was the Genocide Convention, which again was adopted explicitly against the backdrop of the Holocaust. And in, it defined genocide in very clear ways as actions aimed at imperiling the survival or ability to reproduce itself of any particular community and so on. And again, you should read the text of the Genocide Convention. But unlike the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Genocide Convention required states to sign up to it. The UDHR is only a declaration after all. 
and many states uh, have signed up to the genocide convention over the past uh, several decades but it has seldom been invoked as an explicitly as a provision in order to act in humanitarian crises and we'll talk about why that remains the case in just a minute now i've talked about three aspects of the legal argument the un charter the universal declaration of human rights the genocide convention there is a fourth and in some ways perhaps most important one because it is also something which is more elastic which is not as set in print as these other things are which is customary international law now we didn't have a chance to talk about international law because of you know running slightly behind schedule owing to various disruptions i had removed the section on international law from the course but the readings are available and if you want i'd be happy to share them with you for those of you who are interested in exploring this topic a little bit more at this point of time let's just say that international law is quite different in character from national laws for obvious reasons national laws presuppose a sovereign state and an entity like a constituent assembly which draws up a constitution from which the laws flow and the existence of various kinds of representative bodies like parliament the senate or the american congress etc which draft laws from time to time and there is an entire machinery of the bureaucracy the police and in the last instance even the armed forces in order to enforce this law none of this obviously obtains in the context of the international system which is a system as we know defined by anarchy even if it has various kinds of asymmetries of power now international law therefore functions broadly on two things the first is treaties these are agreements that states enter into one another but this could also be collective agreements to which states sign up and the second thing is customary law or customary international law which is law which has come about simply by taking into account how states have been typically behaving in the past customary international law is also known as opinio juris and it is this customary international law for humanitarian intervention that has been invoked from time to time and again as i said the idea of human rights per se is a relatively new one coming into uh, UN Charter and in the UN Declaration of Human Rights after the Second World War, but the idea that states should intervene in the event of large-scale humanitarian suffering in order to alleviate suffering is something that has been around. Now, again, I want to emphasize this distinction: humanitarian action is aimed at alleviating suffering, whereas human rights is about upholding rights. Now. Both these might happen in the same context. Rights could be violated and people could be suffering in very large numbers, or they could be separate. So there, is, there are instances going back to the 19th century when states have intervened ostensibly in order to alleviate the suffering of peoples in other countries. Now, this kind of customary international law becomes the fourth leg of the legal argument alongside the UN Charter the UN Declaration of Human Rights and the Genocide Convention. So much for the legal argument. The case for intervention 
often turns on moral arguments, which in some ways are more urgent and perhaps even more comprehensible to most of us than the legal arguments are. Now, the first moral argument in some ways is embedded in the language of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights itself, which is revulsion against acts that shock our conscience as humankind as a whole. Now, this could be mass killing, genocide, ethnic cleansing, various kinds of activities which might rouse and shock our conscience collectively. But it is not enough for our conscience to be shocked. The moral argument also turns on certain kinds of moral obligation towards strangers. After all, if we are part of any clearly bounded political community, it is our own states and those states to which we owe allegiance, for which we pay taxes and for which, if necessary, we will even go and fight in wars, or at least people used to do that in the past. What kind of obligations do we have towards people who are not within a bounded community, which is the modern nation-state? Now, there is a certain tradition of ethics, which we spoke about when we talked about ethics, which is the whole idea of cosmopolitan ethics, where people, where the argument is that the moral obligations on us do not stop at the boundaries of nations and states, but extend as much towards strangers. Of course, the moral argument also turns on other kinds of ways of thinking about morality and ethics in international politics, particularly the just war tradition, an argument which has often been made whenever humanitarian intervention comes up for discussion is that this is a just war because it is being fought for a just cause, the most important of all justifications, justa causa. Just cause is very much there because here we are going to use force in order to alleviate the suffering of so many people or prevent the abrogation or curtailing of mass rights of many others. There is also the right intention. Why shouldn't states act in order to stop such large-scale suffering, actions that shock our conscience as a human species, and so on and so forth. So you could go through the entire chain of what the just war tradition requires of us in order to justify a war, and then say that here is a case for intervention that actually meets most of these, because humanitarian intervention in many ways tick off most of these boxes. So much for the arguments for intervention. Now let's consider some legal and moral arguments against intervention. Now the first and to my mind the strongest legal counter argument is that sovereignty is a much stronger norm in international relations than human rights are. And that the UN Charter itself, in some ways, recognizes that. While proponents of humanitarian intervention cite Article 1.3 of the Charter, which calls for promoting and respecting human rights, opponents cite Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, which says, all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat, 
or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. So this is very clear. You cannot, states cannot use or threaten to use force against the territorial integrity or political independence, which is to say they cannot threaten or use force in order to violate the sovereignty of any state. In fact, even the United Nations' own powers in this regard are quite carefully limited. Article 27 prohibits the UN from intervening in matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. Now, the only exception to this is for peace enforcement under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. Now, there are two types of ways in which the United Nations can intervene in order to uphold international peace and security. Remember that upholding international peace and security is the main task of the United Nations. Now, under Chapter 6 and the provisions articles which are given under Chapter 6 of the UN Charter, these are ways of peaceful resolution of disputes. And under Chapter 7, there are various provisions to deal with what are called threats to peace, breaches of peace and acts of aggression. Now, only peace enforcement for these contingencies under Chapter 7 can the UN collectively decide to intervene in the domestic jurisdiction of any state. Now, very clearly, things like ethnic conflict or humanitarian crises are not included under the description of things under Chapter 7. So this is what those who argue against intervention point out to, that sovereignty is actually a fairly strong and well-defined norm within the UN Charter itself. And those who are pointing to calls for promoting and respecting human rights really are on weak grounds here. The second argument is about international law and customary international law. As I said, you know, there are treaties and there's customary international law and customary international law or opinio juris is frequently been invoked to justify humanitarian intervention. And the arguments against customary law is that it simply reflects the actions of great powers and their prerogatives in the past. The international system has changed considerably since the advent of the United Nations and that older forms of great power behavior are exactly what the UN was supposed to control and in many ways proscribe. So customary international law cannot be invoked in any straightforward way to justify intervention in the internal affairs of another state. So these are the two legal counter arguments about sovereignty and about customary international law not really being relevant in the current context. Let's look at the moral counter arguments really which are made against intervention. The first is that interventions and humanitarian intervention if accepted as a principle is always open to abuse. Who can judge what the real intention of any state is? Great powers will always use moral fig leaves to disguise their drive to maximize interests of power. 
straight out of the playbook of E.H. Carr. In fact, those who make such arguments cite you know, egregious examples such as Hitler justifying the annexation of Czechoslovakia on the grounds that the German army was moving into Czechoslovakia in order to protect the German minority within that country. So great powers will always come up with some excuse or the other in order to basically camouflage what their real interests or power is in a certain context. So who can judge intention and why would you even depend on the stated objectives or professions of any great power? Secondly, the moral argument goes, there is always selectivity intervention. Clearly, every time there is a humanitarian crisis, great powers or the United Nations is not lining up really in order to intervene. In our own times, there have been so many examples of crises where the UN or the United States or Britain or NATO has not really bothered to intervene. And the argument goes that the selectivity itself bears out the first argument that moral arguments for intervention are mere fig leaves. The fact that states intervene in one context and not another only goes out to say that rather more than morality, what is at work is power and interest, which, as realists will tell you, is the way the world works. The third kind of argument, a moral argument against intervention, draws on an influential essay written by the great liberal philosopher John Stuart Mill. Mill's argument was that the oppressed in any particular country should themselves overthrow the oppressor. It was this act of overthrowing the oppressor which in effect amounted to self-determination and Mill argued that freedoms really cannot be imposed from the outside. Certainly not at the edge of a rifle's bayonet. So the argument goes that if a certain people who are at the receiving end of oppression are not willing to stand up and fight to throw the yoke of oppression away, no one from the outside can really give them freedoms that will last for very long. So this is the third argument, a moral argument really, against intervention. A fourth argument is that sovereignty in some ways has been the best protector of human rights. Decolonization, which is to say granting independence to erstwhile colonial countries and giving them political sovereignty, has done more to uphold human rights globally than anything else. This is an argument which is made particularly by post-colonial theorists and scholars from erstwhile colonial countries. They have constantly argued that to say that you know there is a tension between sovereignty and human rights actually does not grasp the historical fact that this tension has already been resolved in many ways towards the direction of sovereignty, which is to say that in most cases, it is the extension and upholding the norm of sovereignty that does the most to protect human rights. And that to say that sovereignty effectively is a shield against which human rights violations are taking place is not so much incorrect as a case of extrapolating from a few instances 
to then upholding certain kind of a new norm of international relations. The last moral argument is that of what you may call moral hazard. Now, this is an argument uh, which is made in many different social sciences. Even economics has a variant of this problem of moral hazard. Let me give you a small example. The moral hazard argument runs along these lines of saying that if you took an insurance policy for your car, it's quite likely that you will drive a little more rashly simply because you can always get cover in the event that you end up bumping your car into some place or another. So in a sense, certain kinds of assurances in effect promote what you might think of as adverse or undesirable behavior. So the moral hazard argument in the context of humanitarian interventions has particularly been made by a scholar called Alan Cooperman. Uh, you have a couple of his readings assigned to you uh, in this week's list. Cooperman argued uh, that if we have a clear norm of external intervention for in internal affairs of another state in the event of a large-scale rebellion or some such, then in effect we may be encouraging rebels to act in expectation of external intervention. Yeah? So rebels might actually kick off a certain kind of an armed conflict simply because they expect external support to come in. Now, this may also be, there is another twist which you could add to this, which is to say that rebels may also do it or take actions in order to invite a large-scale disproportionate crackdown from their own states, which in some ways would justify external intervention even further. So the moral hazard argument, therefore, is quite controversial, but it's an important one. Beyond the moral and legal arguments for and against interventions, there are practical considerations that states have to take into account when deciding whether an intervention is warranted, feasible and desirable in any given context. Now, these are the kinds of arguments which are outlined in your readings for this week. Stanley Hoffman talks about some of these considerations. There are others in the article by Richard Betts, which looks at how the United States in some ways has grappled with how to make force effective in the context of humanitarian interventions. The first issue, the first practical consideration that states have to take into account is when do we intervene? After all, the intervention is premised on the assumption that it is being done in order to prevent or alleviate mass suffering. But what is the threshold of suffering or of gross violations, so to speak, that would actually justify the abrogation of the sovereignty of another state by external armed intervention? What is the threshold at which a state must intervene or states can intervene in a civil war, say, going within, playing out inside another state, an ethnic conflict? How many people have to die? before we can say that yes now the situation has got to a point where there is a serious massive humanitarian suffering and crisis underway should it be a hundred deaths should it be a thousand should it be a hundred thousand 
when do we know that the threshold has been crossed? Clearly, there is no formulaic or mathematical answer to these kinds of questions. In effect, it depends on judgments. And those are judgments not just about what has happened in a civil war, which itself can be quite disputed because information tends to flow out in so many different ways. There are conflicting claims that each side would make about who is committing atrocities and so on. But there is also a judgment about where this is headed. If you want to make a call for saying that the UN Security Council has to act now in order to prevent a massive humanitarian uh, or an ethnic conflict from playing out within a state, then it is effectively a judgment call that the United Nations Security Council or a leading group of states has to make about how this particular conflict is playing out. And that, as with all such judgment calls, can be wrong. It can be questioned. It will be disputed and it will be controverted. It is very rarely the case that judgments of most states or at least of most great powers will align automatically on the readings of one particular state or even of the UN Security Council or the Secretary General on where a developing situation is really headed. So the first question therefore is that of threshold. When do we decide that an intervention is warranted? Because we are going to intervene by abrogating or violating another very strongly established norm, which is that of sovereignty. The second practical consideration typically tends to be who is going to decide that we should intervene? Who has the powers to authorize an intervention? Now, in theory, you would say that that is always with the UN Security Council, which is the body which is charged with protecting international peace and security, and that any international use of force can only work with the authorization of the UN Security Council. Now, that might seem like an easy answer, but what if the UN Security Council is not able to get its act together? And history of the last 75 years is replete with examples where the UN Security Council has not been able to collectively decide what the course of action should be in order to deal with the evolving situation. If it's not the UN Security Council, can individual states act on their own? Can they bypass the Security Council? Can they say that our action is legitimated by the authorization of other kinds of international entities, like the NATO, for instance, or perhaps more regional organizations, like the African Union? Is it an organization that is capable of authorizing an intervention within a state which is a member of its organization, even if the UN Security Council is not able to act? Now, these are practical considerations. And acting or even not acting always has a certain implication and perhaps even a major cost in terms of what is happening to the situation on the ground. So, when do we intervene? Who authorizes the intervention? The third question, do we have the military means to intervene? Do states actually have the capacity to be able to deploy force in a way that enables them 
to effectively prevent a massacre or control fighting between two groups or to impose certain kind of peace and stability within another country? This is a practical question. It is not at all the case that all great powers have capacities to intervene in militarily in a con conflict which might be playing out quite far away from their homelands. The United States has the most capacity simply because it has this network of military bases across the world. It has more aircraft carriers. It has more airlift capability. It can lift huge numbers of soldiers and equipment and supplies to a third country. But even these capacities are not unlimited. They cannot be turned on as if on a tap. Even with the best planning and pre-positioning, it is very difficult to estimate where such a crisis can break out and whether anyone has actually the capacity to intervene. And if we go down the chain of great powers, apart from the United States, there are few other even permanent members of the Security Council who have the ability really to intervene in a meaningful way in a distant country. So when do we authorize? Who authorizes the intervention? Do we have military means? And then the minute we start talking about whether we have the means, we also have to think about whether we can use force in a discriminating way. Use in bellow. Recall the two broad streams of just war tradition. One enjoins us to think about what are the conditions under which going to war might be justified. Use ad bellum. And the second is use in bellow. Right, which is about how do we conduct, what kind of conduct during a war is just. Can we use force in a way that is discriminating or will a humanitarian intervention actually end up targeting, killing and perhaps imposing suffering on a large number of innocent civilians? The National Security Advisor to President John F. Kennedy was a man called Mac George Bundy. He was also the Dean of Harvard University before he became Kennedy's National Security Advisor. Bundy used to say that you know, people keep talking about something called a surgical strike. Obviously, you have heard of this term in the context of what happened between India and Pakistan a couple of years ago. Bundy used to say that there is no such thing as a surgical strike. A surgical strike is like every other surgery. It is bloody, it is messy, and it may require the patient to go back for a further round of treatment. So the idea, therefore, that you can use force in ways that are absolutely discriminating or do not end up imposing more suffering than what they are alleviating is something that cannot be taken for granted. These are balances which have to be weighed and assessed in real time. Then there is the whole question of saying, what is the best mode of intervening, say, in the context of a civil war or an ethnic conflict which is playing out within one territory? Now, this is the kind of dilemmas that are posed by these are considered by Richard Betts in the chapter that is assigned to you from his book. Betts talks about the tension between impartiality and going in with limited resources. Now, in theory, you may say that if there is an ethnic conflict going on, then the task of the external intervening group, whether it's a UN Security Council authorized one or not, is 
should be one of carrying out their duties impartially. They have to separate both sides out. But if you want to do that, then using limited amounts of force may not be enough. So if you are targeting effectiveness, then you may need more force. And you may have to use force in such a way that actually supports one side in the conflict, perhaps the weaker side, because there is something like a balance of power on the ground as well. So impartiality and effectiveness are likely to be at something of a tension within uh, this context. Another kind of tension comes up in the context of coalitions that are usually put together of states, even if under a UN umbrella, in order to carry out a humanitarian intervention. Individual states in a coalition may impose what are called national caveats, which is to say that they may say, for instance, Germany or Norway might say that, yes, our troops are going to be part of this humanitarian intervention in Somalia or in Afghanistan, wherever, but they will not take part in active hostilities. Their only job is peace enforcement. They will never get into shooting matches with anyone. Now, the minute those kinds of national caveats are imposed, it further limits the capability of the external intervening power or group to be effective in a certain context. So there are these tensions between impartiality and effectiveness or limited versus unlimited or excessive use of force and so on. There is another more fundamental issue which is raised by Edward Luckwack in his reading where he says that, you know, all wars, including civil wars, end at some point of time. And when they end, they establish something like a balance of power between the winners and the losers. And in some ways, it is the function of wars to be able to establish those balances of power. Because once the balance of power is clarified, you will have peace. The weaker will fall into line. So Lutbach says that give war a chance let these conflicts play out. Why should we intervene in the support of the weaker side, thereby perpetuating an unrealistic balance of power? If we want to be realist, then we should say that, listen, here is a conflict. Yes, it is having humanitarian costs at this point of time, but it is in the interest of long-term peace and stability that we actually allow the hostile sides in this particular internal conflict to themselves come to some kind of a balance of power. So let the conflict play out. Of course, it seems and it is very callous, but it's an argument which is worth remembering because it makes an important point, even if he puts it in quite a provocative way. Latvac's point also points us to another set of issues which you may think of as problems after the humanitarian action and intervention has in some ways been completed which is how are you going to establish order? If you are going to intervene in a state in order, say, to overthrow a tyrannical regime or government, a despotic government which is targeting its own people, let's say, yes, you managed to overthrow them, you defeated them, you got them out of government, but you may also, in the process, have destroyed much of the governmental apparatus of administration of judiciary, of the police. So who is going to provide order after an intervention? It is unlikely the case that the intervening power can come in, strike, and then get out 
leaving behind another government which is perfectly capable of providing order after the conflict is over. You know, there's a uh, line which is usually attributed to the great boxer Muhammad Ali, who is to say that, you know, he floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. Interventions can't operate like that. You can't just float and sting and exit. Somebody has to be there, you know, as the Americans say. The rule is that if, if you've broken it, you own it. You know? So the minute you decide to intervene in a country, you cannot just say that, listen, the most important thing for me is to have a quick exit strategy, right, in order to get out of the situation. Somebody has to provide order. How will that order be provided? There is another problem in the post-intervention scenario, which is the tension between order and justice, which is to say that the requirements of justice might be that you actually want to bring to justice those people who have been perpetrating large-scale violations of human rights. These could be people who are genocidaires, who have indulged in ethnic cleansing, in violence, rape, murder, and a range of other things. Increasingly, over the last 20 years, you know, there has been a move towards greater juridical forms of dealing with the requirements of justice after an intervention has been carried out in a humanitarian crisis. These are various kinds of what you might think of as war crime or crimes against humanity, which are tried by a legal tribunal, which is usually set up in countries. We've had tribunals for various countries uh, like Yugoslavia and others where people were charged with having committed crimes against humanity or war crimes and were then brought to justice. So this kind of justice is seen as being absolutely necessary to heal the extraordinary wounds that are usually left behind by an internal conflict. But there may be a tension between, say, justice on the one hand and other criteria like peace. Because when you start bringing war criminals to trial, you're going to have lots of testimony about what was done. It may rekindle memories about violence that one ethnic group perpetrated on another. And in some ways, the argument goes that it could actually lead to a much longer festering of wounds that are possibly just best left unaddressed. If you really want to do proper post-conflict justice in these kinds of situations, the number of people who are involved in perpetrating these kinds of crimes, especially in civil conflict, tend to be extraordinarily lot. So if you want to go anywhere beyond the top leadership that planned and executed these acts, you may have to bring in quite a large swathe of population. And that, in some ways, could create or set the stage for future conflicts between these ethnic groups. So in a sense, there is a tension between justice and order, between justice and peace. So these are the kinds of things that states have to take into account. When do we intervene? Who authorizes the intervention? Are military means available? Can they be used in proper ways? Uh, how will we intervene actually? Is it going to be impartial, limited? Is it better in some ways to just let a conflict play out irrespective of what the costs are? And even if we do manage to intervene, how are we going to provide order, justice, and peace in the wake of the conflict itself?
Okay, in the last part of this lecture, I want to give you a brief history of the development of these debates around humanitarian intervention. Now, I cannot go into the details of every conflict that I will be talking to, often simply in the passing in this lecture. But you can easily find out more about each of these if you went online and did a few searches. These are all events which happened in recent past, so they are fairly well documented and it's quite easy for you to come up to speed. So I will take you through the history of the evolution of these, leaving behind many of the details for you to go and read up for yourself. So the starting point for discussions about humanitarian crises and intervention really is to say that despite the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Genocide Convention, both of which came out in late 1948, there was not really much of a consensus or action in terms of getting states to accept what these responsibilities might actually mean for them. In fact, at least as far as the Genocide Convention was concerned, many states were not particularly keen even on signing up to it. It is important to recall that the United States refused to sign up to the Genocide Convention in the initial years. And they refused to sign up because senators from the southern states of the United States believed that the provisions of the Genocide Convention could in some ways be turned against their own policies of racial segregation. So the United States does not sign up to the Genocide Convention until 1985. And it's worth recalling why it signs up in 1985. So in 1985, President Ronald Reagan goes to West Germany and agrees to visit a, uh, a war cemetery called Bergen-Belsen. And after his visit is announced and just before it takes off, it comes to light that there are some former Nazi soldiers belonging to the SS who are buried in the same cemetery. Now this becomes a huge embarrassment for the Reagan administration. And in order to deflect international criticism, the Reagan administration actually pushes the Senate to then ratify the Genocide Convention. Right? So that just goes to tell you that great powers have all kinds of reasons for not wanting get into this case. In fact, throughout the Cold War, or at least for most part of the Cold War, the UN Security Council was quite inactive on these kinds of issues. Order and stability were seen as most important in the context of a bipolar superpower conflict when both sides had large systems of alliances behind them and both continued to intervene in what was known as the third world or the decolonizing world. Now, this is also a period where decolonization and the gaining of sovereignty by a number of states which were previously under colonial control is moving apace. And the norm of sovereignty really is spreading and taking root in so many new countries. Now, if you recall some of the most important humanitarian crises, crises where there were gross violations of human rights, massive violations, uh, there were actually three of them in the 1970s. There was the crisis in what is today Bangladesh and then used to be known as East Pakistan in 1971, when India had eventually to undertake a military intervention 
to make Bangladesh an independent country. And this conflict was spurred by the unwillingness of the West Pakistan government and the Pakistan army to give you know, political rights to the Awami League or the Bengali-led political party in Pakistan, which had emerged as the single largest party after the elections of 1970. So there was a huge amount of bloodshed, almost 10 million Bengali refugees ended up in India. And despite India's best efforts, the international community refused to take cognizance of it. The United Nations uh, did not look at it as anything other than a potential problem of peace and security because what they feared the most was not the humanitarian impact, but the possibility of a war between India and Pakistan. So India eventually had to go to a war against the uh, sort of in defiance of various kinds of attempts at the UN Security Council to prevent India from using force. Similarly, in 1978, Vietnam invaded Cambodia to overthrow perhaps the most murderous regime of the 20th century, which was the Pol Pot regime. Again, you can read up about this extraordinary episode. A year later, in 1979, the Tanzanian government intervened in Uganda, which was then ruled by a dictatorial leader called Idi Amin, who was again turning on his own people. Now, the interesting thing about Bangladesh, Cambodia, Uganda, all in the 1970s, was that each of these actions was actually condemned by the great powers of the day and in the United Nations. What is even more interesting is that even the intervening states themselves did not invoke human rights or a right for humanitarian intervention. They did not simply refer to these as norms which authorized them to act at all. In fact, if you take the Indian case in 1971, when the war broke out, which is to say when India decided to attack, seize Pakistan and liberate Bangladesh, and this issue came up in the UN Security Council, India justified its actions as an inherent right to self-defense. They said, we are defending ourselves against this form of refugee aggression and that the Pakistanis had effectively pushed out 10 million of their citizens into Indian borders and that India had no option but to create conditions under which these people would go back and that could only happen if Bangladesh became an independent country. So not only are humanitarian interventions frowned upon but even the intervening states do not believe that there is something like a well-established norm against massive violations of human rights or alleviation of humanitarian suffering. Now this situation only starts to change in the post-Cold War period and there are three aspects of this period that in historical terms that are worth noting. The first is the collapse of the Soviet Union which means that there is effectively only one superpower which is the United States of America and there are no peer competitors. The second is the concomitant ideological victory of liberal capitalism. And the third, which we discussed last week, is the onset of globalization. And globalization, as we remember from last week, is about effectively the shrinking of the world. It is about transmission of people, goods, money, information, ideas at extraordinary unprecedented speeds. And in the context of the globalization uh, of the early 1990s, 
many of the conflicts which were playing out in far-off countries would often end up coming and dragging the attention of people who were sitting in their homes. This, in the context of the post-Cold War era, came to be known as the CNN effect, which is to say that when there was a distant humanitarian crisis and cable news network would beam it into Western homes, then there would be a broader popular outcry for some kind of action by their governments to intervene. And political leaders themselves believed that not acting in the context of such transmission of CNN effect would effectively reduce their standing within their own population. Right? So democratic leaders felt that globalization impelled them to take action to alleviate suffering even if these happened in far-off places. Now, the first clear instance of this playing out really happened in the context of northern Iraq in April 1991. Now, the, there was a war which was fought between a US-led coalition and Iraq, which followed the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait, and the Iraqis were kicked out of Kuwait. But in the aftermath of the war, the Iraqis government under Saddam Hussein uh, seemed to be turning against a minority population called the Kurds who live in northern Iraq. And when it became clear that the Kurdish uh, peoples who had used the opportunity of the war to you know, do some kind of an uprising against Saddam Hussein might actually be put down with brutal force, the US-led coalition announced a no-fly zone over the Kurdish areas. That is, they said that any plane, including any Iraqi military aircraft, which entered Kurdish areas or the no-fly zone would be shot down by the military assets held by the coalition. Right. So this is a clear use of force in order to constrain the sovereign rights of the Iraqi state within its own territory. And this was justified as a use of military intervention in order to stave off an possible humanitarian catastrophe in the Kurdish areas. The next such instance where we had was in Somalia in uh, December 1992, when again, because of a long-running civil war between various tribal groups and warlords in Somalia, there was a huge humanitarian catastrophe which started playing out, particularly with famine stalking the country. And it was in this context that President Bush, George H.W. Bush, and subsequently Bill Clinton decided on a UN intervention, but led by the United States uh, to Somalia. Now, here was a classic example of the CNN effect and an another intervention now under the UN auspices, but being justified as aimed at removing humanitarian suffering. But what also became clear during the Somalia conflict, and this was important because it set the expectations for subsequent conflicts, was that there was not just a CNN effect, but there was also something that you call the body bag effect, which is to say that when American soldiers started losing their lives and their bodies were being sent back to the United States, there were all these memories of older conflicts like the Vietnam War about 
how American soldiers had been sent off to fight these wars in faraway places and were losing their lives for needless purposes, which then started also taking a toll on public opinion and then impacting political decision-making. Now, this became absolutely clear when uh, there was a contingent of U.S. Marines, about 18 of them, died in a particular clash with a forces of a Somali warlord called Muhammad Farah Aidid. Uh, this was captured in a book which later became a movie with the same title called Black Hawk Down. Those of you who have not watched it, take it as a recommendation. It's definitely worth watching to understand how complicated these kinds of situations can be when you're trying to intervene between warring groups and when these lives were lost there was an immediate political effect in the sense that President Bill Clinton decided that he would, within a short span of time, pull out U.S. troops from Somalia, even though in the short run he beefed them up. But he did that, keeping in mind fully that within a stipulated time, all American troops would be brought back, right? So the Somalia conflict tells you that, yes, there is the CNN effect, there is the humanitarian concern, there is globalization, but there is also the body bag effect. There are these practical military considerations about what kind of price the intervening coalition is willing to pay in order to uphold humanitarian uh, human rights or to prevent humanitarian suffering. Now, this had another knock-on uh, implication in the context of the genocide which happened in Rwanda when the Hutu majority of the country turned on the Tutsi minority and in a matter of a few weeks literally led to one of the fastest genocides in recent memory. And during the Rwandan crisis, the United Nations and the US more or less refused to intervene in any meaningful way. In fact, at that point of time, the United States was not even willing to label this incident as a genocide because there were obligations devolving on the United States under the Genocide Convention if it agreed to characterize what happened in Rwanda as a genocide. And you have another very good article by Alan Cooperman this week where he talks about the real practical constraints that also operated. Could the Americans have intervened in Rwanda even if they wanted to? Did they have the ability really to stem this killing and prevent the scale of the massacre which happened? It is estimated that something up to 800,000 Tutsis might have died in the genocide in Rwanda itself. Now, the Rwandan genocide and the resulting kind of humanitarian backlash and this feeling of revulsion that the international community and the United Nations had failed in some ways to prevent a clear instance of genocide then sets the context for the next controversial intervention which happens in Kosovo in 1999. Now, Kosovo is a small province within Serbia, which is one of the breakout states of Yugoslavia. So when the former Yugoslavia broke up, there were a series of ethnic conflicts which played out through the 1990s between the Serbs of Serbia, the Croats of Croatia, and the Muslims of Bosnia. And the Kosovo conflict, in some ways, was followed up on the back of all of these internecine ethnic conflicts which had played out and in which Serbia had played a particularly egregious role. And in fact, 
it was U US led military action which had eventually led to a peace accord called the Dayton Accord uh, named after the airbase in Dayton Ohio where it was signed where the Serbian government eventually agreed to a ceasefire and do an agreement now the Kosovo crisis was a bit of a follow-on to the Yugoslav or the Balkans um, ethnic conflicts of the early 1990s in this case Kosovo was a small province within Serbia but which had a distinctive ethnic makeup Kosovo did not have a majority of Serbs but had a majority of people who are known as the Kosovo Albanians and in 1999, it seemed as if a conflict was brewing between the Kosovar Albanians and the Serbian state, and the Serbian leadership, Slobodan Milosevic, was gearing up for another round of military crackdown and perhaps ethnic cleansing within Kosovo itself. This then led to a uh, debate about need for intervention by military action in order to coerce uh, the Milosevic regime to desist from ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. The Russians put their foot down because they said this was simply an act of the part of the United States and the NATO to prop up the expansion of the NATO further towards Eastern Europe and to assert its prerogatives in Eastern Europe much closer to Russia's own territory. More importantly, the Russians felt a certain kind of ethnic kinship with the Serbians. There was an idea of being Slavs, all of them. So in the event, the United Nations Security Council couldn't get its act together. So the NATO then independently authorized a military action which was led by the United States but had other NATO countries. That led to a bombing, an aerial bombardment of Serbia lasting for about 78 days, at the end of which eventually uh, the Milosevic regime gave in. But the manner in which the Kosovo action happened which was seen as a unilateral action outside of the UN auspices also led to a major backlash against the humanitarian interventions of the 1990s. Now, some of the considerations of states which were talking about these kinds of humanitarian interventions were captured in a speech in Chicago in April 1999, just as the Kosovo crisis was unfolding by the then British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Tony Blair titled his speech, The Doctrine of International Community. And he laid down a series of tests that states must think of when they were considering these kinds of humanitarian interventions. He said they had to be sure of the case. They must know that all diplomatic action was exhausted, that there were feasible military options, that they were ready for being involved and engaged in the long term. And finally, that humanitarian action was also concerned with the national interests of the state. And Blair then made the argument that Kosovo in some ways was a, uh, a test case for these kinds of principles and so on. Uh, and Tony Blair uh, then also became a major advocate of intervention in the post 9-11 case. After the attacks on the United States on September the 11th, 2001, the first intervention which happened was to depose the military regime, uh, sorry, to depose the Taliban regime by military action in Afghanistan. By 2003, the United States had set Iraq in its sights and demanded effectively a policy of regime change 
in Iraq by the use of force. They said that Saddam Hussein was in possession of various kinds of weapons of mass destruction and that he was a live threat which had to be preempted. Saddam Hussein's record in power as someone who carried out systematic abuses and large-scale violations of rights of his own people was also trotted out as another reason, a humanitarian reason really, for intervening in Iraq. This issue was hotly discussed in the United Nations and even the Western countries split up with France and Germany taking a stance against intervention while Britain and the United States uh, stood for the intervention. The UN Security Council, of course, uh, could not act and once again, the United States and Britain decided to act without explicit authorization by the United Nations Security Council, claiming that an earlier authorization dating back to the first Gulf War of the early 1990s was sufficient to go to war against Iraq. Now, the Iraq intervention, as we all know, proved to be a total disaster. It confirmed every problem of post-conflict stability or lack thereof that advocates against humanitarian intervention had been warning for all these years. But at the same time, the community of advocates for humanitarian intervention also sought to salvage these actions from the wreckage of Iraq. And the way that it took place was to recast humanitarian intervention as a doctrine called the responsibility to protect. Now, this came up initially by way of a separate commission which was set up, a private members commission led by a man called Gareth Evans, who then came up with this doctrine called responsibility to protect. The core argument was simple. It said that sovereignty does not just grant rights of territorial integrity and political independence, but sovereignty also requires states to be responsible for protecting their own populations. And if states do fail to protect their own populations, then it devolved upon the international community to take necessary actions in order to protect these peoples. And that that set of actions culminated typically with the use of force if necessary. And there was a concerted attempt to set up responsibility to protect or R2P as it came to be known as a new norm in international relations, right? So a clear declared attempt at setting up and disseminating a norm was made in the mid-2000s. This issue was discussed in the UN General Assembly and a document called the World Summit Document of 2005 then was issued, which tried to reconcile the desire on the part of the, some of the Western states and advocates of responsibility to protect, but balance them off against the concerns of other states which believed that such a norm or doctrine could in some ways open the floodgates for all kinds of intervention by powerful states. So the crucial paragraphs in the World Summit document uh, state that there was a collective international responsibility to protect populations from four things, genocides, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. But at the same time, they set these off with a series of qualifying clauses in the same documents, which included the stipulation that action to prevent genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity would have to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. They would have to be done in cooperation with the relevant regional organizations, and they would have to be done in conformity with the principles of the UN Charter and international law. 
right? So while the new norm of R2P is being propounded, the international system of states, particularly weaker states who are likely to be at the receiving end of interventions, but other countries like India too, which were strongly opposed to setting up R2P as a norm in such an open-ended fashion, then bring in these stipulations. It has to be case by case, you have to cooperate with regional organizations and you have to use the UN as the sole forum through which these actions would be done. Now, the first serious test case for R2P uh, came in the context of an uprising in Libya against the dictator Muammar Gaddafi. And it felt like the Gaddafi regime was going to undertake a major military crackdown on rebels in eastern Libya. And this led to calls for a UN authorization, Security Council authorization, under responsibility to protect. Now, this initially, the authorization actually was only for a no-fly zone uh, to be imposed against the Libyan regime uh, in order to protect the rebels. But eventually, uh, the United States and the United Kingdom uh, used military force in such a way that it led to the deposition of the regime of Muammar Gaddafi and ultimately to the killing of Gaddafi himself. So the Libyan intervention in 2011 really set the clock back as far as R2P was concerned. Opponents and critics of R2P and humanitarian intervention made a strong argument that the Libyan case showed that the provisions of R2P could be abused by the strongest states uh, in order to carry out actions that were simply not envisaged under responsibility to protect, particularly regime change under the guise of supporting and uh, protecting peoples. Now, what the Libyan case, as much as the Kosovan case suggested, is that there are always going to be mixed motives. Yes, there were apprehensions of humanitarian catastrophe, of an impending catastrophe, but there were also other kinds of power-related concerns, whether it is about extending NATO's remit to Eastern Europe, to giving the organization a new uh, lease of life, or about reimposing American uh, you know, dominance in the Middle East in the wake of the disastrous uh, sort of debacle which happened in Iraq in 2003 and thereafter. Now, the real price for these divides was and is continuing to pay, paid in many ways in the context of the civil war which is happening in Syria. Now, the civil war in Syria is perhaps the worst humanitarian catastrophe in our lifetimes. And yet, there has hardly been any concerted attempt by the international community to act to prevent this from happening. And the reason is simply because of these multiple considerations of saying, who decides when the time is right for intervention and how should this intervention happen, whether it is right to depose a regime. The United States, again, in the context of Syria, uh, was very clear up front that the Syrian uh, leader, in, uh, President Assad, has to go, is what uh, Barack Obama said. But others then took it as a call for regime change and said that we cannot countenance another instance of regime change happening under the guise of humanitarian interventions. And of course, subsequently, the Russians intervened in order to prop up the Assad regime. And it's been an enormous and tragic catastrophe with huge humanitarian costs, huge movements of refugees, uh, and an issue which in some ways is, when the dust settles, likely to bring back the question of humanitarian interventions on the table of international politics. OK. So much for humanitarian interventions this week. So after this lecture, 
please go and do your readings at a minimum the required readings but you may also want to at least dip into some of the recommended ones because those deal with some of these case studies that i've been talking about please do go and check out the various um, civil wars and conflicts that i spoke about here whether it is northern iraq and kurdistan somalia rwanda kosovo iraq libya syria uh, details about all of these are very easily accessible to you and it is important for you to have that background knowledge in order to be able to think for yourself about how this question of humanitarian interventions plays out so do check these things out and go into your discussion sections with preparation we will be in touch with about other aspects of the course particularly your assignments and so on uh, I know this is a tough time with the three-week lockdown just coming into place and many of you might be anxious about what this means. Please, please feel free to reach out at any point of time. I'm available for a phone call, for a Skype chat, for any kind of a discussion, whether about the course or anything else that might be concerning you. So please do not feel that this is a period when you're by yourself. Uh, take care, stay safe, wash your hands. And I will be with you again next week with the next lecture on nuclear proliferation. Take care. Bye-bye.